0: We need to remember that we are facing a double extinction crisis, biological and cultural. Indigenous languages are disappearing very fast. So biocultural heritage is really critical for us to protect nature and culture and achieve multiple sustainable development goals and ensure that the negative impacts of development and conservation on the poorest people like indigenous peoples are avoided Um, So it's really essential for uh, equitable and effective conservation and human rights to be respected uh, both um, in development and conservation spheres.
1: Welcome to another episode of Save Our Planet. I'm your host, Stephanie Saptom, working with People's Planet Project on this initiative. So far, our episodes have taken us to the jungles of Brazil, Nicaragua, and Uganda, where communities face similar threats to their livelihoods and cultures from logging, mining, and large-scale agriculture. In this episode, we'll be discussing a unique participatory approach that is being implemented worldwide to protect indigenous farming communities' culture and livelihoods. Joining us today is Christina Swiderska, she is the lead researcher on Indigenous biocultural heritage for sustainable development at the International Institute for Environment and Development. She is working with partners in Indigenous communities in Peru, Kenya, India and China and is also conducting a PhD in biocultural heritage at Coventry University's Centre for Agroecology, Water and Resilience. Thank you so much for joining us, Christina. It's a pleasure to, to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. So, to start, one of the main aspects of your work is biocultural heritage. That's probably a term most listeners are not very familiar with. Could you explain to us what that is?
0: Yes, yeah, so biocultural heritage is the biological and cultural heritage of Indigenous peoples and local communities. So, it includes biodiversity, that's wild ecosystems, and also uh, domesticated agroecosystems and the ancestral territories of indigenous peoples. And it includes the indigenous people's knowledge and cultural and spiritual values and their customary laws. And these different components are all interlinked and interdependent, and they can't be separated. This is in accordance with the indigenous people's holistic worldviews. And also we see the evidence of these interdependencies in practice between the biological and the cultural heritage.
1: This might be a bit technical, but what would you say is the difference between biocultural heritage and conservation?
0: Well, biocultural heritage um, recognizes the inextricable links between biodiversity and people and the critical role of indigenous people in conserving nature. So it puts people at the center of conservation and in fact, it's a response to Western conservation approaches that often assume that people have to be separated from nature in order to protect nature. And then the term heritage it really reflects the ancestral rights of indigenous peoples over the biodiversity they have conserved for generations and also their responsibilities to continue to conserve biodiversity for future generations. So the term heritage really fosters a a strong community ownership, a very bottom up approach to conservation that reflects indigenous people's own holistic worldviews. And it emerged from traditional knowledge, whereas conservation has emerged from conservation biology from Western science. and And it very much focuses on the biodiversity sector. So it's a more sort of siloed, sectoral approach.
1: That's a very important distinction with I think very um, powerful implications, especially for indigenous communities. In our first episode, uh, we we discussed the Batwa people of Uganda who were evicted from their forests in the name of conservation. So this people-centered approach is is a very powerful alternative to conservation with its potential negative side effects. Could you give us an example of what biocultural heritage would look like in practice?
0: Yes, so there are a number of examples of biocultural heritage initiatives around the world. One of the best examples is the Potato Park in the Peruvian Andes, which was established with support of a Peruvian NGO called Asociación Andes, uh, Association for Nature and Sustainable Development. So the potato park involves six Quechua communities and comprising thousands of people who sustainably manage almost 10,000 hectares and together they've been able to conserve about 1,400 different varieties of native potato and this is thanks to their traditional knowledge and their indigenous cultural values and beliefs in mountain gods and sacred seeds and so on. So really uh, fundamental to these conservation successes are their, their indigenous cultural values of solidarity, reciprocity, and balance with nature, um, which underpin their efforts to conserve biodiversity. And also their holistic well-being um, focus, um, so they their goal isn't economic development, but it centers on the well-being of both people and nature. Um, And for them, well-being requires balance between the human and the sacred and the natural worlds. They've also worked with the International Potato Center, which has repatriated or returned native potatoes, which they had lost from the area and the, the International Potato Center had collected them. So they've worked in partnership with scientists also to link traditional knowledge and science and they've established a community seed bank and several micro enterprises that sustain biocultural heritage.
1: As someone who has been to Peru, I can testify to the significance of this. The Peru, in Peru, there's over at least 2000 varieties of potatoes. So potatoes are such an important part of Quechua culture and, and livelihood. So this is really phenomenal. I I want to ask, was this potato park created in response to an external threat? What was the uh, driving factor behind its foundation?
0: Yes, well, originally the driving factor was to do with mining, Uh, that was a big factor, Uh, but also, you know, this is an an area of a very rich native potato diversity, it's, you know, globally important. It's a center of origin or domestication of potatoes. There are lots of wild relatives of potato, but this diversity was disappearing and the culture was being eroded. And both those, those, the loss of biodiversity and the loss of culture were mutually reinforcing each other. So it was a combination of those sort of three threats, and the the incredible potential in this area um, and the incredible importance um, in terms of global food security and resilience to climate change that led this NGO to start working with these communities. And also I think the the exceptional cultural values that they have, you know, they're direct descendants of the Incas, um, which made it a more, you know, enabling context for a biocultural heritage-centered conservation initiative. And
1: obviously the potato park would be a very specific thing to Peru, but you're working in other areas as well. Based on the success of the potato park, how can this approach be adapted to other regions of the world?
0: Yes, the potato park has had multiple impacts. It has revitalized biodiversity and culture. It's protected land rights against mining for 20 years now and it has strengthened livelihoods and enhanced food security and resilience to climate change and other communities from from Kenya, India and China have visited the park as well as many other countries and they're now trying to to establish similar parks. So we are working with these local partners and communities in, in very, very different contexts in coastal Kenya, Northeast India and Southwest China to try and establish similar parks um, in areas of important diversity of major food crops. The, the real, the, the 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 central key to, to the success of the potato park has been the decolonizing action research process that has over time really strengthened capacity of the communities, empowered the communities, and really fostered strong local ownership, strong local organizations, collective organizations. And that has led to the self-sustainability of the potato park, you know, beyond any project. So what we're trying to do is really replicate and adapt this decolonizing action research approach to these other contexts, which are not, not only different culturally and ecologically, but also politically, which makes it quite challenging at times.
1: Right, that leads to my next question. What challenges has the biocultural heritage territory model faced when adapting to different parts of the world?
0: Well, the main challenge really um, in the context where we're working in Kenya, India, and China is that the cultures are, you know, have are less strong. So the indigenous culture, indigenous values, indigenous beliefs have weakened as the communities have become more modernized. Um, So for example, in Kenya, in, in the coastal area, we're working with Michigenda communities and the elders protect Kaya forests, but others in the communities, Are becoming less and less interested in the traditional knowledge and and the culture and the Kaya forest conservation, you know, particularly the youth. And there have been a lot of Western development projects, Western agriculture projects, they're near Mombasa. So the modernization process is further down the line. So that makes it more difficult, as particularly as different people, different actors in the communities have different views on their biocultural heritage. Um, And then in China, in China is similar. There's been a a loss of traditional culture, but there there's also a challenge of this centralised government control, which makes it more difficult for to support the emergence of autonomous local institutions, which are, are at the heart of biocultural heritage territories. And similarly, in India, there's a challenge of loss of culture, but also they're quite mixed culturally in the area where we're working. So it's multi-ethnic and there's the the, the added challenge of uh, government protected areas and reserve forests that restrict access to forests and traditional uses and traditional livelihoods. And that combined with promotion of modern agriculture is shifting the communities towards cash crops. Um, So in Peru, those cultural challenges aren't quite so acute as in these other contexts.
1: But what successes have there been so far? So in Peru,
0: apart from the Potato Park, um, they have um, established a maize park, which is in a similar cultural context in in the Andes. And that has been very successful in conserving um, very rich maize diversity and um, revitalizing the cultural heritage that goes with it traditional knowledge and really um, you know making a, a strong counter force against the modernization pressures that they're in and also against bringing communities together to defend their territories against mining so that's been a, a successful case in China there's also been um, the area where we're working they've established a network of of four um, communities along the Yangtze river is quite a large area and this biocultural heritage network has revitalized a lot of lost crops and you know the communities are really really got together and to strengthen their biocultural heritage which is in this sort of critical transition point. and then in Kenya and India, we are seeing a revival. We are seeing communities getting together, but I think it's going to take a bit longer than, than in the other contexts like Peru.
1: So evidently you are an outsider coming to these communities and working with them. And I'm sure you've had a lot of incredible experiences getting to speak with them, getting to know local leaders, indigenous groups, and learn more about their cultures. What is uh, their perception of biocultural heritage based on your own interactions, what kind of changes would indigenous communities like to see moving forward?
0: Well many of them are um, are trying to ensure that their traditional knowledge and their traditional cultural values and their well-being concepts are revitalized and in Peru they have now, really strengthened in the potato park, this um, Ailu concept, this traditional concept whereby by well-being is requires balance between the, the nature and um, the sacred realms and the human economic development realms. And in the other context, the communities are now looking at their looking to their elders to try and understand their own kind of development philosophies that have been weakened and their own cultural values that they can re-establish and strengthen like reciprocity, solidarity, and balance with nature. And these values are still there in their culture and the elders remember them, but now the issue is transmitting that to the youth. And so by supporting these decolonizing action research processes, we're supporting the efforts of these communities to, you know, tell their, the elders to tell their oral histories to the youth, to do transit walks across the landscapes to identify medicinal plants and traditional foods, you know, before the knowledge is lost, and to, to to promote this trans transmission between the generations, and then alongside that to look at how, you know, how this can be also used to develop micro enterprises, um, to increase incomes for the youth, um, so that they don't all just go to cities to do their research or university degrees and don't come back. Um, So um, the main thing we're grappling at the moment is supporting the communities in those processes and in the collective setting up of collective Um, associations um, to govern their territories and getting those legally recognized.
1: As you've mentioned, cultural loss is one of the greatest challenges to um, the biocultural heritage model. Um, Is there something you think that could change in government or development policy that could support this model moving forward?
0: Yes, Um, I think first of all, there's a real need to integrate traditional knowledge and culture, and biodiversity as well across development sectors. So into agriculture policies, into education policies, health, nutrition, um, and development. You know, economic development, um, because these are, you know, government policies are really promoting the erosion of traditional knowledge and culture and biodiversity uh, through modernization, through modern development. So there's a a real need to integrate um, biocultural heritage into different development policies and conservation policies. And that includes an integration of indigenous peoples holistic um, models of development that provide alternatives where the the goal isn't just um, unlimited growth at the expense of of natural resources, but but this perpetual balance with nature and the limits to growth. Um, And secondly, I think there's a real need to democratize, democratize policymaking, democratize decision-making from local government to regional, to national and to international levels to make it inclusive of these marginalized voices of indigenous peoples um, in order to to achieve this integration of traditional knowledge, culture, and biodiversity across development and conservation sectors.
1: Finally, I'd like to ask what implications the biocultural heritage model has um, for the agricultural industry at large.
0: Well, biocultural heritage um, is really about food sovereignty. It's about local co- local control over f- farming systems and crops and markets. Um, so biocultural heritage territories um, are reviving uh, traditional crops for nutrition and climate resilience and food sovereignty um, so that indigenous peoples and local communities can be the ones who decide over which farming practices to use, which crops to use, which foods to consume. And they are increasingly rejecting modern industrial farming models that are pushed by governments and industry, which have led to, to worsening health and a rise in non-communicable diseases amongst indigenous peoples, you know, like diabetes and cancer. And they're increasingly um, making them more vulnerable to climate change and and also eroding Indigenous peoples' rights over their ancestral seeds and related traditional knowledge, which are really often not protected in law. So um, I think for the agricultural industry, um, it's making it more difficult um, for them to... um, extend their model into indigenous territories and extend their markets for products for you know for fertilizers agrochemicals and seeds
1: absolutely i mean this is such an exciting model with so many um, possible implications for as you said food sovereignty cultural revitalization it's really exciting especially after a lot of my previous interviews have Um, sort of talked about the negative impacts of agriculture and here's sort of a positive alternative to that. Um, Christina, thank you so much for speaking with us today and I want to ask, is there a final message that you would like to leave our listeners with?
0: Well yes, I think um, we need to remember that we are facing a double extinction crisis, biological and cultural. Indigenous languages are disappearing very fast So biocultural heritage is really critical for us to protect nature and culture and achieve multiple sustainable development goals and ensure that the negative impacts of development and conservation on the poorest people like indigenous peoples are avoided. Um, So it's really essential for uh, equitable and effective conservation and human rights to be respected Uh, both um, in development and conservation spheres.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much again, Christina, for speaking with you. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank Uh, you very much. To
1: our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. You can follow People's Planet Project on social media for the latest updates about our work. And for more information on biocultural heritage, check out the Biocultural Heritage website. We'll be leaving a link in the description so you can check that out and learn more. I'm Stephanie Saptong, and this has been Save Our Planets.